Would you turn with me to Genesis chapter 18? We'll be there in here in just a moment. Genesis chapter 18, the first book of the Bible. We're going to look in just a moment at this really incredible and mysterious ancient story. And we're going to do so, thank you Robert, in the context of our fourth core practice that we are looking at this year as a church. And our fourth core practice is to create space. To create space. So as you're turning to Genesis 18, I want to make a confession. Okay? Y'all ready for a confession? Now, I want to say first, as a disclaimer, that Amy and I are not messy and dirty people. And this is where Amy is like really intrigued. But the confession is... Sometimes we can be untidy, okay? And what I mean by that, as Amy is tapping her fingers in frustration, is sometimes there's laundry that's not been folded. (sighs) I know, I'm confessing to you. Sometimes there are tables that are not cleared. Sometimes there are dishes that are not clean that are in the sink. I know, it's shocking, I'm telling you. Because all of you have wonderful like pitch, like perfect, what does that mean? What, like spick and span houses, yes? Well, this is why I wanted to confess to you. But here's the trick. All of that changes with some magic words. When we get a phone call or a text and they say, hey, can we drop by for a minute? And I do mean they're magic because those words immediately change us into these cleaning tornadoes like two little Tasmanian devils Emma and Nora are hopeless. They don't do anything to help us. But we start to buzz around the house and we start to put things where they need to be and we tidy up and we, (sighs) because we can be ready for you lovely people and we can welcome you into our nice house. This is my confession. When you come over, there's a highly likely chance that five to ten minutes before, it did not look the way it looked. But we want to be hospitable to those who are there meeting with us. So tonight as we talk about creating space, we're talking about tidying up our schedules, tidying up our lives, tidying up the busyness that can keep us from being ready to welcome in God and others into our lives. And the story that we're looking at in Genesis 18 is a story of when God dropped in on Abraham and Sarah. And they were ready to receive him, and they showed him this radical hospitality that I think helps us understand what it means to create enough space to welcome God's blessing and God's message and even God's people into our lives. So if you're there with me in Genesis chapter 18, we're going to read this story. We're going to explore this core practice. Along the way, I hope you have an imagination or an invitation to see what it looks like to create some own space in your life as we explore this story together. So if you're there, I'm going to read the whole thing from Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 to 15. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and he saw three men 
standing nearby. Now that's interesting, real quick, because we just said the Lord appeared to Abraham, but what does he see? Three men, okay? Mark has already got it figured out. When he saw them, what did he do? He hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them, and he bowed low to the ground. He said, if I've found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Then let me get you something to eat, so you can be refreshed and then go on your way, now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered. Do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three seahs of the finest flour and knead it and bake some bread. Then he ran to the herd and he selected a choice tender calf and he gave it to the servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. Where is your wife Sarah? They asked him. There in the tent, he said. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied, and she said, I didn't laugh. But he said, Yes, you did laugh. This is the word of God for the people of God, and we say, Thanks be to God. Now, at the very beginning of this chapter, the storyteller says, The Lord appeared to Abraham and Sarah. Now, Mark, you said that these are angels, right? Well, what's interesting is you're kind of right and you're kind of not right because it says the Lord, and the word there is Yahweh, which is the big daddy, covenant God, I am who I am. The Lord is somehow present in these three visitors. Now, this is really far out and interesting because in the next chapter, we see two angels, So it's like the presence of the Lord is kind of left at this point. But here we are in Genesis 18, and Abraham seems to be sitting down and welcoming the Lord himself in the presence of these three visitors. Are you confused yet? Well, let's just take a step back. Abraham and Sarah see these three visitors, but you know what else they see? Something more to them. There is something in the presence of these three that they recognize as divine, that they recognize as God. Now Abraham in the stories in Genesis, he visits with the Lord six times, but nothing is quite like this. And could you imagine, for, with me for a second, what it would be like to host God in the flesh face to face? What if God was one of us? Now we believe that 90s song that he was one of us, the person of Jesus. So what if Jesus comes to your house in the flesh? 
Are you going to be like Adam and Amy, the cleaning monsters? What are you cleaning up and hiding? What are you serving to him? Are you going to break out the good stuff? That's what Abraham and Sarah did. We'll talk about that in a minute. And then, like, if you give him some water, is Jesus going to turn it into wine? Or you want to say, hey, here's some fish and loaves, bro. Do it. Do it. What do you do? Can you see why this strange and mysterious story has captivated Jewish and Christian readers for centuries? Because our minds are running wild with, what would we do? And I think the big question is this. If God really did show up and knocked on my door, would I even have the time and space available to meet him? Or would I continue to live in this rhythm that has edged everything out that is not already accounted for in my schedule that I'm not even sure I would see him because I'd burn right past him. This is what we mean when we're trying to create space. Abraham and Sarah were ready to welcome God. So our fourth core practice, we say we commit to make time for God and others for transformational relationships to grow. For transformational relationships to grow. As a society, we are working more, we are sleeping less, and we are committing to more things at any point in history. Studies will back this up, but studies will also show we're less content, we're less joyful, we're less rested. So as a church, we must commit to create space. And in our core practice, we're very intentional with these words that you find in our partnership agreement. And that word says, make time. We've said in this church that you don't find time, right? If you go out looking for time or fishing for time, you will come up empty every time. You with me? Time must be made. Time is not found. Last year, I referenced a book called Margin. And what I talk about making time is really expressed by this term margin. Richard Swinson said in this book, it's what we do to make that space around our schedules, like on a sheet of paper, that gives this buffer space where we can actually make time to do the things that are life-giving. You with me? Here's what he says in his book. Margin is defined as space between your current situation or performance and your limits. Margin is a buffer or a gap, a place of reserve for reflecting, relating, recharging your batteries, and focusing on things that matter most. If you want a shorter definition to write down, you could say that margin is the space between your load and your limit. What do I mean by that? Your load is the stuff that you just got to do. You got to show up to work because your boss is going to be mad if you don't. You have to do this. You have to build into relationships. You have to parent your children. So this is your load. And then your limit is on the other end that says, okay, 
When I fill in that space all the way to the point of no return, I'm at my 100% max. He says, you've got to leave some space in between maybe the 70% of your time of the stuff you got to do versus the 100% of the time that would be overloaded. Are you with me? So the margin is the space between your load and your limit. And he said this is so important because when there is a lack of margin in your life, he says you have a little margin for anything or anyone who is not already in your schedule. If anything out of the ordinary happens or a special opportunity presents itself, you have little capacity to respond to it. Watch this. If God wants to drop a miracle in your life, you do not have room to receive it. The problem is there's so much that God wants to do. There's so much he wants to do by just dropping in. But would we be like Abraham and Sarah who are running to meet him and then have the margin enough to say, come and sit at this table? But the problem is, in our culture, in our society, in your current schedules, you're going so fast at 60 miles per hour that you can barely make sense of what's on the other side of the window. It's going by too fast. And it's our own making. This is the challenge. It's our own making. And we are complicit to go along with the way of the world unless we say enough is enough, we have got to create space. And you know what I was thinking about today? Do we even have margin in our budgets to meet needs that God is calling us to meet? Do we have enough, not just for the emergency fund and savings, but when someone comes and says, I'm in need, and I need God to meet this, would you even be available to be used by God to be a blessing to someone else? Do we even have margin in our budgets? That's another way we're going along with the way of the world and we leave no margin at the end of the page and we're continually working at 100% and instead we're finding ourselves less rested, less joyful, and less used and blessed, I believe, by God. Now, God loves to bless us. God loves to meet us. He wants to meet us. But I also think he's delighted when we can turn our face to him. He's delighted when we serve him as Abraham and Sarah did. He wants this. Why? Because when we do this, we're transformed. So in our core practice, if we can put that back on the screen, we need to make this time for God and others. Now, the truth is, we always make time for what we value. And, And this has been eating my lunch when I wrote this down a few days ago. And I've been pondering these questions. Who do I value? If some dear friend of yours that had moved away is coming into town and he says, hey, I'm here, I'm only here for this day, would you make that time if you value this person? Probably. So who is it that you value in your everyday life today? Then this other question, has this been eating my lunch? We make time for what we value. What do I value? How I spend my time, how I spend my money, how I spend fill in the blank. What is it that you value? I think if we were to log our time, we would see that we value our phone like it is solid gold. And some iPhones are actually gold. (laughs) And here's the third question. 
Does your schedule reflect what you say you value? Oh, man, this has been eating me up all week. So what does it mean to make time for God and others? One of the tools at your disposal in this church is up here. It's the rhythm of life. And it's a way of not multiplying God tasks so you can make him happy. It's a way that he can transform you if humbly and graciously you're willing to arrange your life in order to be formed by God for the sake of others. So to take this, to read these reflection questions, to ask what you're valuing, to ask what's life-giving, and then to humbly say, God, I'm not trying to be legalistic with this, but would you help me arrange my life in such a way where I can give you just this bit of time, just this bit of service, to make time for God. You are all here at Saturday at 5 o'clock because you've made this time. You're there Wednesdays because you've made that time. Have you made time in the in-between time to cultivate a relationship in silence and prayer? And yes, it's difficult, but you've got to make the time, and it takes time in order for it to become a habit. But we have got to follow Jesus. We've got to spend time with Jesus if we want to be like Jesus for the sake of God's kingdom in our families and our neighborhoods. But the thing about it is, and you see this in our partnership agreement, God has called us simultaneously not just to relationship with him, but to a relationship with his people. There is no such thing as a lone ranger Christian that can just go out there with the Bible in the woods and say, I'm done with it. No, no, no. The context in which Christ makes us like him is with all of you lovely people and the neighbors out there because in order to forgive others and to bear with one another and to love one another and to submit to one another, you need a one another. It's not just enough to say it and to read it and to pray it. Would you inhabit your beliefs and he gives you all of us to encourage you, to equip you and to give you opportunities to live what you say. So we need to make time for others. You know, it's interesting because in our church, every fifth Saturday, there's about four year, we have communal meals in lieu of a worship gathering. And some of my pastor friends think that's nuts. Because why would you want to sacrifice a time of worship and teaching as if y'all need to hear me and Pastor Kathy all the time, every time? We need to give space for the relationships, because that becomes the glue by which we can build community and go and be the community and show this hospitality and love to our neighbors. Well, why do all this? Why make this space for God and others? It's there in order for transformational relationships to grow. Because the primary context in which God transform you transforms you is in those spaces of prayer with him and in those spaces of practice with others. Discipleship is relational. And we talked about last week how in our church we've leveraged everything on relationship. Do we do Bible reading programs? Yes. This Lent, we're all going to read the Bible together like we've done each year, the last three years, with our Lent for everyone. You can read the Bible and you can discuss the Bible every single week in this church. Do we do classes? Yes, to build you up in knowledge. Amy and Toby have done a wonderful job in the Philippians Bible study. Do we serve in our community? Do we do stuff? Yes. 
But the key ingredient to all of this is that we would be in these relationships. To be fully engaged in the church is to be fully engaged with people. Because these are the relationships that God uses to transform us. So we need to make time for God and others for transformational relationships to grow. Before we get back to Abraham and Sarah, I want to tell you about Amy and Cameron. And I ask their permission to share a real-life example of two people and a family that have committed to create space for God and others. We read these margin quotes last year, I believe, toward the beginning of the year in a sermon. And I guess they had been thinking about this, praying about this, and something resonated at the beginning of 2017. And they said, you know what? Margin needs to be central in our family life in 2017. And they're sharing with our community on Wednesday that each year they kind of adopt these mantras as a family to kind of be intentional and to be focused in their life together, which is what we're doing with these core practices, to be focused and intentional. So margin was their mantra. Because if you knew the Sinclairs, you knew that they were involved in a lot of stuff. They had two busy jobs teaching. Then they have three kids who are involved in a number of things. Then they have friend and family obligations. And they say it's not that they were unsustainable, but they were definitely full. They were definitely toward the edge of their limit in the margins. Aren't we? Are they the only ones? And they said, let's try to scale that back. And they did so by saying no to a good many things. And this is what they shared on Wednesday, having lived a year of trying to say no and create more margin. They said they had more joy, more energy, and more commitment to things that brought real value in their life. And the things that they were saying no to, hear this, the things that you need to say no to are good things. But they may not be the right things in this right time, in this right season in your life. What is the old business mantra that good is the enemy of the best? There are good things and then there are the right things and the best things and sometimes you need to say no. So it's not like you're just cutting out everything or the bad things. It's that you're saying yes to those things that are better and more life-giving. And this is what she said in a text. It was an intentional choice to choose something better and to open ourselves up to hearing and following God's call for something different. I want to go through this next slide quickly because I hope you're wondering what are some ways that I can create space as an individual and as a family. And I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this because I want to get back to Abraham and Sarah and how they were able to hear God. But I want you to ask, what are some ways that I can create space and turn down the noise out there in order that I might hear from God I'll post these on Facebook and with the sermon online. But I will highlight this first one. I know of a business in Omaha, Nebraska, where it's a warehouse space. And what they incorporated a few years ago was from everybody from the top to the bottom, the CEO to the loaders, every day of work in the middle of the day, the, the intercom goes out and the alarms on the phones go out and you have five minutes of silence. 
And you'd think, well, dude, that's five minutes to be answering an email, to be getting stuff done, to be making it happen. And what they found is that their people were more productive, they were more rested, and they just hit this reset button that got them through the latter half of the day. Maybe that's for you. And let me tell you, it's going to feel weird and hard because five minutes feels like an eternity when you're just starting. You see the rhythm of life. For kids, what would it look like for you to give, those of you who are parents, 20 minutes or 15 minutes or however many minutes a day to say, hey, you have my undivided attention. We're going to do what you want to do. Get ready to play sorry and monopoly and whatever else. It may cost you. (laughs) No, you're going to find it so beautiful because you said no to this in order that you could say yes to something better. For us, for me, for screens, where is a screen-free zone and when is a screen-free time? Our family, for developing relationships, right? Not just making time for God, but making time for others. How often this month will you eat with others? over the table. Because when you say no to these things, you find you have more space to be able to hear from God. And the reality is this, hearing from God, yes, it's difficult, yes, it's nebulous, but it's not impossible. And I found that it takes really three ingredients. It takes time. It takes attention. And it takes an affirmation. It takes time simply because we need to get into the rhythm and the discipline of calming down the noise that is demanding our attention in our life in order to detox and debrief. And then it takes attention. What does it mean to discern God's voice? And it may not be as mystical and as rocket science as you think. Maybe it's that way of your conscience that he's using, your imagination that he's using. And I think, too, when you're meeting with other people around the table like Abraham and Sarah, you hear things they say and you see that there's something more. Yes, there's three men sitting here, but God is in this place and he's delivering some kind of word or message, which leads to the third bit, affirmation. When you sense that, when you hear that, if it doesn't look and sound like Jesus, it's not from Jesus. It's that simple. So don't go running around being polygamists. I'm just kidding. I'm not really, but you get what I mean. That's how you do an illustration to lose everybody. We're going to edit this out of the sermon, and we're going to move back to Abraham and Sarah. Here's what I mean. By creating space for his divine visitors, Abraham created space for God's message to be heard and for God's blessing to be received. And this is fascinating. It didn't happen at an altar, a temple, or as a result of some ritual. It happened around the table. The divine visits us where we are in our everyday spaces. The question for us is, do we have space to pause and welcome what God has for us? In the first half of that story, you see Abraham and Sarah dropping whatever they're doing in order to welcome these visitors. And you see that he first offers them water to drink, water for their feet, and he offers them shade for their rest because it was hot 
in the Middle East. And so what happens is you got to remember that as you're walking from place to place, there are no Ubers and there are no holiday inns. And so in this culture, then and now, hospitality is vital because they needed to depend on the kindness of strangers in order to make it to where they were headed. And so he offers them the basic needs for travelers, but he says, please stay because Abraham and Sarah are going to go above and beyond. He says, stay, chill, get some water. But then he runs back and says, get the finest flour. And he says, three sias of it. Three sias is like 36 pounds of flour. How, many, how much flour do you have in your pantry right now? Abraham is not just meeting basic needs. Abraham and Sarah are going above and beyond. And they are using an amount for one adult for one month. And they're going to make about 60 loaves of bread. And it's the best bread because he says it's the finest flour. And then he says, while Sarah's doing this, he rolls over to his meat freezer. And he finds this choice young calf. And he prepares it. And he says, this is a special visitor and a special occasion. Don't wait for Thanksgiving. We're doing this thing right now. And he offers them the choicest cut of meat for these people. And I'm thinking about this in our church. And I'm wondering, will TNC run to welcome those that God brings to us? Will we meet the basic needs like we do at the clothes closet? To give dignity to our neighbors. To listen to our neighbors. To offer them a smile and to pray with them. We see these people every month and they're beginning to know us and we're beginning to know them. But the next step for our church, the next level for our church, as we collectively create space for these others, is would we do what Abraham and Sarah did and go above and beyond? And that means, like Abraham and Sarah, it might cost us our resources, our time. It might cost us our comfort. Because a kingdom space and a kingdom hospitality is not just to welcome the people that look like us, sound like us, and like the same things. And students, you know what will make a difference in your school? Not to just like the people that you have the same class with or the same clique. What will make a difference is when you go and love the other. That's a kingdom difference that gets people noticing. Jesus says in Luke 6, what good is it if you only love the people like you? Everybody does that. And then in Matthew 25, at the end of time, he says, the ones who get it are the ones who have met the needs of the sick, the naked, the, those in prison, and the hungry. And they say, Lord, when did we do that? We never saw you. He said, you did when you did it to the least of me. Because like Abraham and Sarah, when we see these visitors, there is some sense in which Christ, Father, Son, Spirit are in there. Would we meet needs and be radically hospitable to our neighbors? Hebrews 13, you can write that down. Hebrews 13 says this incredible thing. He says, hey, don't neglect showing hospitality to outsiders. He says, because some of you have entertained angels without even knowing it. But you've got to have that space or you'll miss it. And look what Abraham and Sarah hear. They hear that he's going to come back in a year and that they're going to have a son. 
Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said. Oh, we jumped ahead. That's Genesis 21. I want us to look back at the second half of that story. I'm sorry, y'all. I jumped ahead because I'm super caffeinated and I'm ready to get to the happy ending. Because they made space, they were able to hear him say, look, you're going to have a son this time next year. Do y'all know how old Abraham and Sarah are at this point in the story? Abraham is 99 years old. Sarah is 90. But here's the trick. If you flip back in your Bible to Genesis 15, we're looking at well over a decade, maybe a decade and a half, when God first says, hey, look up at the stars. You're going to have that many descendants. And he woke up the next morning. He probably, if he told Sarah, he's running. And he said, dude, you're never going to believe this. We're going to have a kid. She's like, dude, you're like 80 years old. He goes, I know it's wild, but God said it. And then they woke up the next day and the next day and the next day and the next day. And you know how many kids they had for years? Zero. And I wonder what Abraham was thinking as he was sitting outside of his tent like he had done every day. And he was sitting in the heat of the day like he had done every day. And I wonder if he even remembered or if it was just a distant memory of what God had promised to him. But then the visitors speak. And they say this question when they hear Sarah laugh because she had said, you know what? That ship has sailed. I'm old. And God, you might have forgotten. But he says this question. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And this question is so vital for us when we're so sick of waiting. This question is so vital for us when we're in the depths of suffering and struggle. Because what this question does, and hear this, is it shifts our focus from everything that's difficult to a God that is powerful and able to do the things that we think are impossible. This question shifts our focus from our difficult situation to a powerful God. This question invites us back to the table to see that we are not left alone, that we are not forgotten, and that God is faithful. They had gone about every day wondering, maybe today, maybe today, and every time, no. And Sarah gives us the realest response when she hears those words. She laughs. She laughs. Okay, see you in a year. All right. And let's let Sarah off the hook. Because what have we said and done out of fear? What have we said to God and laughed at Him out of disbelief and doubt? And you know what I love about this? In Genesis 21... No matter how much Sarah laughed, it was not a deal breaker, and he was still faithful to her. Look at Genesis 21. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah. Now we're ready for it. The Lord was gracious to Sarah, who had laughed in disbelief and doubt and waiting, just as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age. At the very time God had promised him. 
Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old, a year after the dinner with the visitors, when his son Isaac was born to him. And look what Sarah continues to say. Is it there? Sarah said, God has brought me laughter. And everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Can you imagine after the tears of bitterness and doubt, he turns them to tears of joy. After waiting, he turns it to blessing. The impossible is possible. And the mourning that had cried out so many nights for that decade of waiting, she's turned into laughter. And you know what? Isaac is a name that means he laughs. Do you know that Isaac Vaughn and Isaac Bronco? He laughs. But it's not some joke. <laughs> it's the fact that one day your waiting and your suffering will give way to a faithful God and his promise. And I want to close with this. There is a famous work of art from the 15th century by a Russian iconographer. This is Pastor Kathy's. And it's now known simply as the Trinity. Jewish readers understood this to be Yahweh and perhaps some angels. Christians, after years and centuries of reflection, see in the three visitors the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You see Rublev on the left. You see the Father dressed in gold, which is perfection and wholeness. And then the Son in the center, which is blue. And in his way of thinking, it was like the sky and the sea, how it mirrors each other in blueness because God, the Son, is human and divine. And then you see the Holy Spirit in green because there's this ancient understanding that green symbolized vitality and life within him. And so he painted this icon, and in the Eastern Orthodox and Russian Orthodox tradition, icons are so important because they're windows into seeing and praying beyond what they represent. So to look at an icon is to gaze intently to a space where you're seeing and interacting and in relationship with whatever is in the icon. But what's fascinating and endearing about the Trinity is when you zoom in, you notice that the picture presents and draws your eye down in the triangle to that little box right there. Do you see that? Historians believe, after they found some residue, that Rublev, after completing his icon, placed the tiniest mirror inside that box. Because when Abraham hosted the visitors, he did so much right. And he heard and received so much from God. But he still stood at the far end by the trees. And Rublev, when he painted his icon, he said, no, no, no. I don't want them back behind in a tent like Sarah or by the trees like Abraham. We want you invited in. When you stare at this icon, when you see this 
relationship of love and sacrifice and life and wholeness. You need to stare at this icon to see the Trinity and to see that God invites you to his table. I don't care what you've done. The person standing in the middle has forgiven you by his sacrifice on the cross. And you see right above it is the chalice of the blood of the new covenant that invites us into life with God in ways that people could only dream of. But we're invited in. He makes space for us. So may we make space for him. As we gather around the table this evening, may we find his life in this space and in every one of our tables in the spaces in everyday life. You're invited in. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, we're so thankful for the stories that have survived these centuries that have captured the imagination and attention of so many. So Lord, we ask that you would stir in us an imagination for what our lives could look like as we make time for you in our everyday lives. Lord, we ask that you would move in us to join you at the table, to find ourselves forgiven and brought from death to life as we partake of the bread and the wine, remembering that Jesus reconciled us to the loving heart of the Father who was looking at the horizon and ready to run to us. The Holy Spirit who is breathing us and in us and giving us life and inviting us in. May we remember that as Abraham washed the feet of those visitors, Jesus came and served us. He washed the feet of his disciples in order that we would follow his example to go and create space and serve and love even the least. So would you inspire us and empower us this day to do what you've called us to do as we come. In Jesus' name, amen. May your day be blessed by moments of quietness, light in your darkness, strength in your weakness, grace in your meekness, joy in your gladness, peace in your stillness. May your day be blessed. Go in peace.